Alright, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been in there for a number of weeks. We will finish up today. Uh, just so many things going on uh, in this chapter. And then we move into chapter 7. It won't get any easier. Chapter 7 is a very interesting, if not to some degree difficult chapter to go through because we have to deal with marriage and divorce. And of course, that always adds uh, flavor to our preaching. But it, there's good things, necessary things, and uh, so it's all good, even though sometimes it can be difficult. Um, by way of review, we dealt with uh, earlier part of chapter 6 last week. We saw that our bodies are given to us for a purpose. They are uh, eternal. Our, we shall re- these bodies shall be changed into immortality. So it matters how we use them in this life. We cannot disregard the flesh. We are not free to just let our bodies do what they want to do. We, these, as we'll see today, they are temples of the Lord. And what we do with them matters here in this life. God gave them to us for a reason. We saw that we are one with Christ. Both, as we'll, I'll, I'll mention this again later on, we are both one with Christ in the flesh as well as in the spirit. We are eternally joined to him. And so what we do with our bodies brings the Lord into the mix. We are, uh, the Lord is participating in a sense in his presence with what we do with our bodies. And so desires and needs, functions, urges, all those things must all be brought under control for the kingdom of God. This is something that the uh, Corinthians are struggling with and we'll deal a little bit of why that was the case in just a moment. And so we finish, though, with, with the idea that sexual sins uniquely display the rebellion uh, by rejecting God's authority over us and rejecting who we are as human beings. It totally misuses the body for the purpose it was given to us. To be joined to anyone illicitly or unlawfully is to openly commit spiritual adultery. And Paul is very clear about uh, how awful these things are. They cannot be taken lightly. And even if many so-called churches and so-called Christians are pretending that these sins are are not, uh, we don't have to look at them as strictly as they did previously, uh, is doesn't matter because the Bible is very clear. We do not change what we preach and, and understand from the Word of God based on how things are in the culture around us, right? So the premise, uh, we come through verses 19 through 20, the premise on which the Corinthians seem to base much of their morality or immorality seems to be perhaps twofold. I think they were taking, in some cases, their uh, cue from the laws of the land. If it's legal, uh, let the courts decide. And if the courts decide it's okay, then it's okay for us. And again, it's something that we see today. Many churches have compromised because they are letting the courts and the government decide right from wrong whether they should do something or not. And it seems like perhaps the Corinthians have fallen into that error. But then they've also seem to have taken Paul's biblical teaching that all things are lawful for us. We are no longer under the old covenant law. We are now under a law of Christ. And they've taken that and they've run completely uh, beyond where they should. So Paul corrected that in verse 12. All things are lawful for us, but there are still some guidelines that we must um, that, that govern that. Do they serve the purpose? Do they serve the purpose of Christ? Do they further the kingdom? 
Uh, do they help me? Do they master me or do I master them? Do they edify people? And if they don't, then not, then all things are not lawful. And the, you know, if they don't meet those qualifications. And so Paul refuses to engage in any practice that will prove to be addictive, any practice that will master him, rather than facilitating him in the service of the master. So there are guidelines. Yes, the world has been given to us. Uh, we're not under the old covenant restrictions. Everything that God has made is for us to enjoy unless clearly forbidden in Scripture or it uh, does not serve the purposes of God. And we'll get to an example of that, I think, in chapter 8, where uh, if it offends a weaker brother, then you have to make sure that you deal with that in a way that that does not happen, right? False teachers tend to uh, overemphasize either one thing or another. Uh, and, and I think part of the Corinthians problem is that they have false teachers who uh, were teaching them that um, it's okay, that the body is free to do with it as you want to. And then you have those who say, because, and of course it's led to such immorality that some have been appalled at that and said, well, okay, if sexual immorality is so devastating and bad, then we should just refrain from it entirely. And you've always got that tension. You've always got those who don't want to go too far one way or another. So Paul is correcting both of those. No, the body is to be kept under control. There are reasons for that. And then in chapter 7, the first thing he'll address are those who say that, well, sexuality, we should just stay for, away from all of it. That's a safe thing to do. Well, no, it's really not the safe thing to do. That creates its own problem. And so it's usually one of the mark of uh, false teachers, though, is that they tend to uh, indulge, let, let us indulge in the flesh. And anytime you see that, you know that they are a false teacher. And Christians should certainly fall into similar sins where we either uh, indulge the flesh or we uh, become very legalistic. And uh, I've seen this, and it's something that Santa and I have tried to make, you know, especially in raising our children to be careful of this. I've seen homes where everything is outlawed. I mean, nothing is right, and it's very strict, and kids aren't allowed to do anything even beyond what the Bible actually teaches, and it becomes very repressive. It goes, I think, beyond what the Bible teaches, and the children go up to rebel against that. And I've seen cases where uh, children have grown up to go way off into gross sins and reject the faith. Because, and, and, I, and I I wonder if the part is because they were raised in such a, a legalistic thing where it's all about rules, do's and don'ts, and not about, listen, love Christ for he's our Savior and love him. And what we do, we want to serve him. And, and so when we can't do things, there's a good reason for that, right? And they don't bring in the heart. They don't bring in the reason why some things are not good for us. And that brings so many problems. And so we've seen in our text that Christians have a tremendous freedom in Christ. Paul has no problem using this concept, but he's careful to explain what it means. If uh, this turn, for instance, well, no, I think I have this on the board. Never mind. Galatians five one. For freedom, for freedom, 
Christ has set us free. So he's set us free from sin so that we can be free. Okay, what does that mean? Stand firm thereof and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers, in verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Keep in step with the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so you notice here that Paul says, look, you are free. You're free from sin. You're free, whether it's applied here, you're free from the Mosaic Law. But don't use that freedom to continue in sin, to be thought to continue in the, in the dominion of sin. And he, and he goes on to show that, that, that this is going to ruin your life. There's a, God didn't uh, save us and free us from sin just so that we can continue to be controlled by sin and to live under the dominion of sin. What, what would be the point of that? Sin is bad. Sin ruins your life. Sin ruins your relationships. Sin sends you to hell. So we're free from 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 the guilt of sin. We're free. We're free from the dominion of sin and walk in that kind of freedom. That's the freedom that we are free from. Being controlled by sin stops us from being able to serve the Lord. Freedom then is being freed not just from legalism, but from the dominion of sin itself. So Christianity isn't just a system to be saved, right? It is the removal of all that encumbrances to serve uh, the Lord. It, 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 it frees us from the fleshly appetites that would destroy our ability to serve the Lord and to do good, to be happy. But of course the lie of Satan is that you can't be happy unless you're doing what you want to do. And God didn't make us to be like that. God made us to to live as God would have us to do, and we'll be much better off. And it's amazing. It's that remain sin in us that, that struggles with that so much. It'll always be a constant struggle to maintain a balance between legalism and antinomianism. Be feeling like I have to live by certain rules. Or to feel like, well, I don't have to do anything. I'm, I've been freed in Christ to do whatever I want to do. And neither one of those are good. And there's always that tension. In fact, I would say that if there isn't that constant tension, uh, when you give the gospel, for instance, you probably have gone one way or the other. In other words, if I don't have to, if I don't kind of constantly in my life have to sit down and think about you know what is right and what is wrong. We, you probably aren't worried about it at all, and you've gone off into uh, one air one way or the other. In fact, in, in the presentation of the gospel, if it doesn't to some degree sound antinomian, you probably aren't giving a good presentation of the gospel. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, think about Romans 5 and 6. When Paul, in the first three chapters, dealt so well with the gospel, which was, you cannot do anything good to be saved. Christ has done that which is good. 
there are those who all they were hearing is, it doesn't really matter how you live, you're saved by faith. And said, no, no, no. Yes, it, you can't do anything to earn God's favor, but that doesn't mean that you aren't supposed to do good works, right? And so it, Paul had to deal with that in chapters 5 and 6. And so here he's in the process of explaining to us that our bodies are part of serving him and to ignore this and let the flesh do what it wants to do will cause you to fall into antinomianism that is against the law, against rules. And that legalism isn't the answer either. And of course, legalism primarily is, if you use it probably in the, in the way it's most often used, it is to um, say that, well, we have to live according to the law of Moses or some human system. And that's not that's not the answer to antinomianism. And we tried to bring this out, especially in verses 12 and 13 when we dealt with that. So he's in the process of explaining to us that our bodies are part of serving him. And the answer then is not legalism. In whatever you do, we are to uh, honor the Lord by love and not by ritual or rote law-keeping. So the answer to antinomianism is not to just mindlessly obey rules. It is to take everything that happens to me. And and I love God so much that I'm examining everything I do as to whether it pleases him or not. So if there isn't joy in our minds, for instance, and this is one example, if what I do isn't because of the joy of, of the Lord and loving him and obeying him, that all I'm doing is just mindlessly following rules, and that doesn't honor the Lord. It might keep, it might make you moral, but it doesn't make you godly. So you can, you know, there's a lot of lost people who are good people, morally speaking, but they don't love God, so everything they do is sinful, because they're doing it for other reasons. Paul could have said that sexual immorality is breaking the rules. And he was absolutely correct, right? That's what they did in Acts 15. It was the Jerusalem Council. They said, okay, they gave the, the Gentiles four basic things, kind of in a, in a, real quickly, just be mindful of this. And one of them was abstain from immorality. It's a rule. Don't do it. It's wrong. But they didn't really explain why. And Paul has been explaining why. There's much more to godliness than just not doing something. So we've seen that we are never to see our bodies as just something that we dwell in, so it doesn't matter what we do with them. They are an intricate part of what it is to be human, human and a huge part of serving the Lord. Paul makes it obvious that there is an inseparable link between our minds and our hearts and our bodies. Humans are as much physical creatures as spiritual, and it's easy to see how Satan has used concepts like Gnosticism and dualism to get Christians to indulge the flesh. In other words, you know, the, the Greek thought that bled over into Christianity in, in the form of Gnosticism is, if I just kind of very quickly explain it, is that you've got God who's pure energy, pure light, pure spirit, and for whatever reasons, you got these emanations that kept coming from him. And each emanation would produce another emanation. And the further you got away from the original source, the less pure it was. 
and it became more evil and dirty, whatever. And so eventually you get these emanations down to this one emanation called Yahweh. That's who Yahweh is. And he's so far removed from the true God that he now creates this material world. And so therefore anything that's material is evil and only spirit is good. So of course it's completely unbiblical. But you can see all of a sudden now you've got, and again, these Corinthians were raised in that kind of culture and thinking. And so there was that tendency to think that, well, this body is evil anyway. It's a, it's a necessary dwelling for my pure spirit. Nothing I can do about it. So let it, let it have its day. Who cares? As long as I keep my spirit pure. And Paul says, no, no, we are human beings. We are spirit. We are body. And they are inseparably linked. Because your body can't do anything that your mind doesn't want it to do. So God not only wants our hearts, but he wants our bodies because that is part of us. And as we see in our text today, they are his by creative right and also by redemptive right. Uh, As he finishes in verse 20, you were bought with a price. So he doesn't say your spirit, your soul is bought with a price. You, body and soul, is bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. It's not enough to just say, well, in my mind, I love the Lord. But in my body, I love the sin. There are a lot of people who do that, but they're not Christian. That's not Christianity. So perhaps by using phrases like saving our souls, instead of phrases like saving our bodies, it adds to the confusion. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the term so many souls were saved. But it wasn't just the soul that is saved. The body saved as well. It's just that the body's salvation is not, not here, not happening yet. It's, it's going to happen. But if God saved it all, He saved all of us, right? That's what He said. Look at verse 15 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've been joined. Uh, he's, he's a, as we're going to see here, He's dwelling in you. You can't separate that. It's Gnosticism. And one thing that this reminds us is that we do not abstain from any sin, including immorality, just because we don't want to get a disease or get pregnant or because of some effect it might have upon us. Those might be reasons not to sin, but the main reason is because it dishonors the Lord because we are temples of the whole of the Holy Spirit. Paul could have used the detrimental effects of sin to motivate us, but the, at the end of the day, uh, all that does is make me not uh, live a certain way because of how it affects me, when our first concern would be should be how it affects the Lord. You see, so it becomes very self centered and not God centered. So we have to be very careful about that. Moralism is not Christianity. And in our text today, Paul uses two illustrations, and all that is this introduction. Two illustrations here in verse 20 to teach why what we do with our bodies matter. We are a temple of God, and we, uh, he uses that we are slaves of the Lord. You notice that in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, that is the body that you have from God, uh, that that the Spirit has come from God and dwells your body. So therefore you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So you got this temple, 
and slave uh, examples. Here we see the doctrinal teaching that allowed Paul to say that the body is the Lord's. Uh, in verse 13, remember he said uh, that uh, in the latter part of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God gave us a body to serve him. Right? He, he couldn't be more clear. And so this is why he can say this in verses 19 and 20. Uh, they will be raised someday. They, can't, they will not be discarded like an old pair of jeans. Uh, they are members of Christ's body. And our tendency is to think that this this is kind of just a merely mystical thing that we've been joined uh, by, to God by the Holy Spirit in adoption. Uh, he, he, you know, He indwells us, but we don't really think about how this is also affects our body. It's, just, it's true of our body as well. And clearly, Paul says that this applies equally to the body. As you read in verse fifteen, our bodies are an extension of Christ in the world. And so we're seeing here in the latter part of chapter 6 the ramifications of this. Why it's wrong to be joined to a prostitute because it denies everything that we are not just as Christians but as human beings. Our body is for the Lord. So Christ is doing or at least is present and affiliated with whatever our bodies are doing at any given time. You see, And that puts a huge monkey wrench. I think it do a lot of people, if they actually thought about that in their daily life, they would probably transform the way they live, because we're not used to often thinking like that. Because I don't think it's taught very often in some churches. But His Spirit resides in all of us. And so in verse 19, what we learn here is that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and for this reason we are to see ourselves as temples. For the fifth time, he asked a rhetorical question, do you not know? And that, that implies the fact that you should know this, that, that there's enough information that they had even in their day, in the Gospels and in what scriptures they had, to understand that God dwells in us. In fact, the whole mystery, the, the great promise of the Old Testament is God in us. The Holy Spirit would be given to us. He would dwell in us. And Paul says that, have you missed the entire understanding of what the Old Testament promised in the New Covenant? <clears throat> he is saying that Christians should have been able to put all this together, whether he had written this or not. It should be readily apparent that our bodies are temples of God, and that we are not therefore our own. In chapter 3, he refers to the church corporate as being a temple of God, and here he says individually, not just corporately, but your own body, your individual body, is a temple of the Lord. Now, as I said, the prevailing Greek thought, and it's still prevalent today, is that body and soul are really kind of separate. We need to be careful. It's, it's obviously, they're not the same thing. But we need to be careful being influenced by that Gnostic idea. What happens to our bodies has moral significance, and it affects the inner man. They are not identical. But they're not isolated from each other, kind of like the brain has a physical and an immaterial side to it, right? There's, there's the physical brain, but we know there's that immaterial mind. And with, if you take away either one, you don't have anything of any value, right? 
So you can't have a human being without a body. Now, yes, you have the intermediate state right now where the souls are in heaven, but they're waiting for their resurrected body. But that's how the Lord made us. And so part of having a new inner man is seen in the way it controls the body for Christ. Understand that if you if you have been transformed, it will affect the way you use your body. It isn't just a shed to live in until the storm is over, as some have described it. At our glorification, our souls will be perfected also, and I'm, I'm sure hope so. I'm glad that all sin will be removed. But the body um, is the one place or thing that we right now have total control over. So why wouldn't we use it for the Lord? Now, if you think about it, right? What do you have control over? Very little. You do have some measure of control over your body. Now, the older you get, that starts to wane quite a bit. But I can still, for the most part, tell my body what to do, right? So, without the body, we would not be able to express love and serve one another. Or you think about it, if Christianity is just about keeping my mind pure, how do we serve each other? How do we express love to each other if we don't use the body? in some way or another in our speech and so forth. How do we reach the lost? How do we preach the gospel with just our minds? See, we need our body. God has given us a body to serve the Lord with. There are two words in Scripture for the temple. One usually is used for the entire temple complex and one is used for the inner sanctuary, the place where the Shekinah glory cloud abode. Well, guess which one Paul uses here, right? It's that inner sanctuary. You are a, the place where the Lord resides. And what this does is give us dignity, our, our body's dignity, because God himself dwells in us. He's connected to us. He's, he's there. He's physically there in the Holy Spirit. When I say physically, he's, he's in, in location, he's there. And so one of Paul's points here is that since we have this dignity, we have a glorious responsibility. It's not enough to say, well, because God dwells in you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't have fun. No, we have a glorious responsibility and dignity to to live not as animals, but as human beings as we were created to do. And mistreating this temple is using it in ways that dishonor the Lord, it's unchristian, it's Gnostic, it repudiates our profession. It, it wouldn't be a bad idea then if we can try to find further practical application to think of our old lifestyles when it comes to what we're doing with our bodies. In other words, you know, think about if this is all true, think about how I live, how I use my body in a day-to-day situation. If we tend to sit around all day and let our bodies waste away, if you isolate yourself from the world because you're depressed or you're bitter or for whatever reason, if you're if you're you're so afraid of everything, you know, is it, is it agoraphobia? Uh, you're just afraid to go outside. You're afraid of everything. You won't go outside. And, and I'm not saying that those tendencies aren't real and there. Do you love the Lord enough to say, you know, I'm not going to be controlled by all that nonsense. I, I, I fear God more. He's 
stronger than whatever else I'm afraid of. I'm going to serve the Lord. Consider how you're bringing Christ into the picture when you abuse your body. So we need to get up and think about who we are as Christians and live accordingly. So you see why it's not good enough to merely see our souls as all that matters. That's kind of Corinthians' problem here. and It's not just their problem. Our testimony is generally seen in what we are doing with our bodies, right? More accurately, how we are using our bodies and our souls together. See, the world, we talked about, you have a testimony before the world. It's kind of, you know, raising fundamentalism. And it, I mean, that was kind of a constant thing that they kept pounding. You've got to have a testimony before the Lord. And, and we do before the world. We, we do want to be a testimony before the Lord. But without your bodies, that's impossible, right? It it's all goes into how we're living our life with our bodies. So that our inner man and our outer man are to be seen and used for one purpose. And so in verse 20, the second picture is that of a slave on an auction block. And God is the one who has paid us. He's come along. We were sin, we were slaves of sin, we were condemned, and God came along and bought us. He redeemed us from something bad. So this reminds us that we are not our own person. And that really runs against everything that the world tells us, because the world is bombarding us. You are your own person, do what you want to do, don't let anyone tell you what to do, don't let anyone squash your dreams, no matter how perverted they might be, you know, all this... And it's denying who we are as human beings. So the Lord redeemed us. And there are two ways for us to uh, think about this deliverance. Our bodies were headed for eternal misery in hell. And Christ has delivered us from that. From right from the condemnation of sin. But also, we were held firm under the, dom- the domination of sin. So that we were unable to know and serve the Lord. See, we're not just redeemed from hell. We're redeemed from a lifestyle that hated God and served self and it was leading you to destruction. And we've been delivered from that as well, which is what we've been saying all along. So another thing all this teaches us is that man was created upright and perfect, but sin has ruined us. And Christ is reversing the process. Salvation is getting us back to where we should be. But in even better, not just back where Adam was, because Adam was mutable, he could fall. Eventually, we'll be brought back to the place where we will never be able to fall, never sin. So, in other words, one of the ramifications then is that we are fallen and need to be fixed. Is that evolution is not legitimate? It's not a harmless alternative to the Genesis account. Because man is not progressing upwards and getting better and better. Uh, he was perfect and is going from bad to worse. So again, you got to think about concepts out there and whether they're biblical or not. The naturalistic or man-made view of humanity with this idea of upward progression is contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the cross of Christ. If they say we don't need Christ to take care of ourselves. Either we are redeeming or getting better ourselves, or it must be done through the cross, but it can't be both. Now, we're getting towards the end, so 
Hold on here. But there's three ways that in the ancient world you could become a slave. You could be born into it. If your parents were slaves, you automatically were born, you were a slave. Or you could be uh, brought into it by conquest. If you were in battle and you were captured, you were taken back, you could be taken back to the other country and you became a slave. Or, um, you could, uh, do debt that you could not pay. You would be, you'd sell yourself into slavery to pay off that debt. And each one of those, in one way or another, are used in the Bible to describe, of course, the Christian. We're born in sin, right, from our first father, Adam. Satan and sin conquered us in Adam and Eve and brought us under their control. We know that we're, we're in that sense, we're under the dominion of Satan and sin. And, of course, sin has made us debtors because we have sinned against the holy God and we owe a debt that we can never pay. We have sinned against an infinitely holy God and can never satisfy Him. And so, when you think about how Christ has redeemed us, uh, and he's, He answers every one of those things. How are we redeemed but to a new birth? We, we got our uh, sin the guilt of sin through our first birth, but we are born again. We are made new. Uh, we, he has defeated our enemies on the cross. He has, uh, he has defeated the enemies of sin and Satan, right? And what else has he done? He has paid the debt. He has lived a righteous life so that, uh, that can be imputed to us. He has paid the, the, the debt of sin and, uh, in all three of those things, the cross has taken care of it in, in reverse order, you might say. So Christ has delivered us from the wrath of God and defeated sin that came through Adam. He's broken the power of canceled sin, as we see, so that we do not have to serve sin, but instead serve him. So you see, Paul is saying that we, that we really stood not so much on an auction block, but on a scaffold, condemned, ready to die, and Christ came along and took our place. And freed us from that. We've used the illustration uh, uh, of this, where uh, say you were in prison and you were condemned and you were ready, getting ready to be hanged, and the warden's son who loved you came in and secretly took your place, and he was hung in your stead, and you're free to go. Now, if that was the case, you someone has died in your place, and there's a sense in which your life now becomes an extension of their life. They've given their life for you, and now you, you kind of owe to live an extension of them because they've given you that opportunity. And so Jesus, of course, still lives. He gave his life, and he's raised again. But it's the same thing. We He saved us from certain condemnations, and now we owe our lives now to serve him because he's our Savior. In 20b, is telling us there's no other way to react to what he has done, right? You've been bought with a price, so what's the natural result? Glorify God in the body, because your your body is going to suffer hell forever, and he saved you from that. So what else, what's the other logical uh, necessity from that? It's like buying a slave who's been abused all his entire life. And you know, he's standing there on the auction block, and you come along and you you bid and you buy him and in his mind, well, I'm just going to trade one master for another master. Well, <laughs> of course, that was true in, in maybe in, in in the natural realm, 
I'm just trading one cruel master for another. But then you you free him and you say, no, I, I'm you're free. And now all of a sudden, he sees not just another master, but he sees a savior. He sees someone who delivered him from that which was going to destroy him. And what does he do? He says, I'm yours. Uh, it's a little bit like, if, if I remember in uh, Robinson Crusoe, remember when he found Friday, Friday was about to be killed, and uh, Robinson Crusoe uh, freed, saved his life, and so didn't Friday kind of become his servant for the rest of his life out of gratitude? And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. We were talking about God, not just some other person. We're being reminded what exactly happened to us. The Lord says, to us that we are now his we are not our own and if if the Lord just saved us and this is how I think a lot of people think of Christianity the Lord just saved us freed, and freed us from guilt but left us under the dominion of sin then he has literally just taken one cruel past master and put us right back under another one because our sinful nature is cruel and destroying us and God says, no, he loves us too much to leave us in our sin, that which is destroying us. He's bringing, he's freeing us so that we can enjoy and understand what life is all about and have meaning and purpose. Look at this world and all those living for themselves. Is that really the freedom you want? You see people out there, oh, they're just doing whatever they want to, sleeping around and making all kinds of money and, and, and not living for the Lord. It looks like freedom except that well, first of all, you don't know what goes on in their mind if they really got that. You don't see their private life. But we know where it's all headed. Is that the freedom that you want? Our freedom is that we can now serve the most wonderful master there is. I'll finish with one more illustration from literature. Uh, that's the Count of Monte Cristo. First of all, uh, remember, it was because of the death of his friend in prison that he was able to escape, right? He gave his life for so that, well, he didn't give his life, but he, he was able to exchange, right, and be freed because of the death of his friend. And before the old man died, he told Dante of a vast treasure that was his if he ever got out. Of course, they planned to escape together, but that didn't happen. But it would have been rather stupid to have escaped by death of the old man and to be able to get out of prison and then to say, eh, I, don't, I know there's that fortune out there, but I don't, I'm just going to live you know, as a fugitive on the run and, and ignore all that. It wouldn't have made any sense. See, God has saved us and made us joint heirs with Christ and to teach that Christians don't have to live for the Lord is to say, uh, you're still going to live under the dominion of sin? But because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have the riches of all that Christ is because we are now joint heirs with him. And so the Spirit, we even now, having given, is we are told is all that is necessary to live godly in Christ Jesus. God didn't just save us so we don't go to hell. By rights, our life and body are not our own. And so we are to live as freed servants. And that's a kind of an oxymoronic in our mind, right? Freed servant. And I think that's why a lot of people trip up, because they can't think of freedom as anything other than me doing whatever I want to do. But I don't know how if that shows a, a changed nature or not, right? 
We have been freed to serve. And if you don't understand that in Christianity, you probably don't understand what Christianity is. The true saint has had his wanter fixed. And now, what he wants is to serve Christ. So you're free to do what you want. But the question is, what do you want to do? And the answer is very telling. Because if you really want to go out and serve the flesh, but you know that you, uh, I know I shouldn't, and i got to go to church, and i got to read my Bible and all that, I would say you probably have not been saved. Now, it's not that we have those desires perfectly, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. It is an indescribable gift and privilege to be in our position, freed from everything evil and destructive, and made servants of the Most High God. Servants, yet also sons, right? We've only been dealing primarily with one aspect of this, but we're also sons. We will one day inherit eternal glory. We are inseparably connected with Christ in soul and body. Do you think it would be disgusting and wicked to commit adultery in the church building? You might say to yourself, well, man, how could anybody use that place for that? That'd be awful. It's so contrary to the honor of the Lord and the will of God. I think what Paul is saying is that that's Gnostic to think that way. <laughs> is it? Would it be awful to commit adultery in the church building? Well, yes. But not because it's the church building, because committing adultery is wrong no matter where you are, right? Wherever my body is, I'm taking the Lord with me. And again, you see that idea on TV and the movies where if you're Get the church, that's the place to pray. God is there, you know, and all that. And it's because they don't have any idea of the transforming power of the gospel. And Paul is trying to make us understand what really is going on when we are converted. All right, we'll stop there today. Any questions or comments before we close this off? I appreciate your attention. I know that some of these things can be difficult, perhaps, and uh, but I hope that we've... Uh, Explained it well, and if not, of course, I'm always happy to come over to someone's house and, uh, you know, try to clarify anything that we've said, right? Uh, thank you for your attention, though, you